0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new session of MEMCAST. I'm joined here today by Dr. Osea, one of our nephrology consultants here in East Midlands, and we're going to speak about renal replacement therapy, specifically hemodialysis, a bit about indications, access for hemodialysis, and last but not least, the do's and don'ts for when you have patients on hemodialysis on your ward. Hello, Dr. Osea. Hello, my name is Dr. Osea. I'm one of the renal consultants at Northampton General Hospital. Uh, I've been tasked with talking to you about renal replacement therapy, pertinently about hemodialysis. There are a number of forms of renal replacement therapy, which include peritoneal dialysis and renal transplantation. We're focusing on hemodialysis. When we say renal replacement therapy, what do we want to replace? To, to think about this, we go back to the basic functions of what the kidney does for us. I was taught in medical school to differentiate them into four categories of regulation, excretion, endocrine, and metabolism functions. So the kidney regulates acid base and tries to keep you neither too alkalotic nor too acidotic. The kidney helps to regulate salt in terms of sodium and potassium and other electrolytes, but also water with this. A common fact is that wherever sodium goes, water goes, so the kidney is heavily involved. In terms of excretion, the kidney helps to get rid of water-soluble waste products, which within blood tests is characterised as urea, but actually this is only a small part of the, the waste products. Urea just happens to be the most measurable test that we have. In terms of endocrine functions, the kidney produces activated vitamin D, which helps in calcium metabolism. And also produces erythropoietin to stimulate red blood cell production. And finally, the kidney is involved in metabolism, which from a medical point of view is mostly involved in medications and how we alter the doses. The reason that it's important to talk about what the functions of the kidney are and how we need to replace them is because when the kidney stops working and thus these functions cease to work, we get our indications for dialysis. The kidney is unable to regulate acid-based metabolism, and you get persistent metabolic acidosis, which requires treatment. The kidney is not able to regulate salt and water balance. So we have problems with fluid balance and refractory fluid overload, but also problems with electrolyte. And the kidney is unable to excrete water-soluble waste products, which, as I mentioned earlier, most of those we can't measure, but we can measure urea. Manifestation of being unable to get rid of waste products is more through symptoms, which classically in the textbooks talks about uremic pericarditis and uremic fix, but these are much less common because those are presentations of individuals who have been uremic for a long time without treatment. And in general, people don't come into hospital now having been uremic for weeks and months. It still happens, but not very often. So these are the indications for renal replacement therapy refractory metabolic acidosis, refractory hypokalemia, refractory fluid overload, and uremia, which is somewhat more open to interpretation. There is no cut-off figure for uremia in terms of numbers, but urea greater than 50 is, is a bit of an alarming number, has a line in the sand. It's important to state at this point that there is no differentiation between the indications for dialysis for a patient who has acute kidney injury as opposed to a patient has had CKD4-3 Five six years. Ultimately, what encourages us to dialyze people is these same four indications and a small number of patients who have taken drug overdoses. To allow patients to have renal replacement therapy, they need to be in. They need to have some basic standards or, or basic conditions that they can fit. Most importantly, they need to be hemodynamically stable. This varies from patient to patient, but ideally, their blood pressure would at least be greater than 100 systolic. The patient ideally. We have a GCS of 15, but we know that it's not available for every patient. It's difficult to dialyze a patient who's GCS 3. And the patient should not really have anything acutely ongoing, like an acute ischemic event, ischemic cardiac event, or GI bleeding ongoing. These need to be corrected, if possible, before trying to engage the patient with dialysis, hemodialysis in particular. Hemodialysis requires intravenous access. To allow us to deliver the treatment and this is split primarily into two different types of access arteriovenous fistulas and then lines which can be split into casts or casts. i'm not going to say too much about arteriovenous fistulas on this talk I suffice to say that they should be protected at all costs we should aim not to be doing blood tests on the same arm of the arteriovenous fistula. I should not have blood pressure taken on that arm. And ideally, they should have some kind of protective band to highlight so that they have a fistula on that arm. I've often been asked whether it makes a difference, whether we do blood tests on that arm, but you can introduce small clots. And if a patient clots a fistula, then this could be a catastrophic event. I attended uh, the advanced nephrology course a few years ago, and one of the Oxford Transplant surgeons said that a loss of access for a hemodialysis patient takes an estimated three years off their life every time that happens. So it's something that we should take seriously. For this talk we'll focus on lines which are primarily split into perm casts or tunneled lines and vas casts which are essentially a non-tunneled temporary line. There are a few complications that we need to be aware of. These lines can and do bleed because they're inserted into major central veins. If the bleeding is sort of fairly minute, we can just put pressure on it, but sometimes the bleeding is more significant and might need a senior review or renal review. Dialysis patients come in primarily with two types of line problems, lines that are not working, and are blocked for some reason. Ideally in this scenario, we would just call the renal team because all of the interventions that are required are sort of slightly specialist and slightly niche and are not going to be available on general medical wards. It requires using treatments such as Alteplase, and often if the patient's line is blocked, they're in a position where their dialysis has been delayed or missed. And so even if a medical ward would be able to supply their treatment, the patient would then need dialysis shortly after. So it just makes sense okay. to get in contact with them if the patient's line is blocked. A more important complication in many ways is Lyme infection. Dialysis patients present often with sepsis query source and Whilst there are many different areas that can, can be infected, a line infection should be near the top of the list for almost all patients, particularly patients who are immunosuppressed in, for another reason, such as vasculitis or a transplant. Line infections may not manifest themselves in obvious ways. Patients may just have goals on dialysis, but other patients may have no other symptoms other than feeling more specifically unwell. Classically, we would look for a redness over a, a tunnel, for a tunnel line or discharge from the exit site, but actually those things may not be present. For these patients, it's quite important to take multiple blood cultures, so peripheral cultures, which may be difficult in a renal patient, and cultures from a line to see if there are any different bugs that are growing, and to think about some of the sequelae that can come from line infections. Primarily, those would be endocarditis, because the uh, particularly for internal jugular lines, the lines is just above or just within the right atrium, exposing that to a risk of infection. And because of the potential for seeding infection throughout the body, discitis is also a potential cause of infection or sepsis. These things seem quite rare and described in textbooks as things that you might not see, but actually within the renal department, we are doing a lot of echoes because we do see quite a, a significant amount of endocarditis from Lines from and from In terms of keeping a line, a temporary line in the femoral veins should stay in for no more than a week. Really, it should be about five days, but a week is tops. A temporary line in the internal jugular veins can stay in for about 14 days. Clearly, if the line is not required, they can come out before that. A tunneled dialysis line, either in the internal jugulars or femorals, can stay in for an indeterminate amount of time and allows long term dialysis. So we've talked a little bit about how we do dialysis and why we do dialysis, but probably what most people want to know is what they do if a dialysis a hemodialysis patient lands in front of them on their ward. And other than call the renal scene, there are some things that we can do because hemodialysis patients are in the fairly unique position where one of their organs has failed but they've not been transplanted. This makes them very vulnerable, and we need to make adaptations to their treatment to ensure they are safe. So I'm going to talk through a number of slightly different scenarios that occur for hemodialysis patients. The first one is blood transfusions for hemodialysis patients. Primarily, the renal team aims to deliver blood transfusions for hemodialysis patients on dialysis. There are some practical reasons and some safety reasons for this. Practical reasons are the fact that we have intravenous access three times a week when we're delivering dialysis, and thus it makes it very straightforward for us to give blood transfusions. In terms of safety, but also a practical reason, if a patient is verging on fluid overload, when we are giving blood transfusion on dialysis, we're able to remove the equivalent volume or more at the same time. So we could be in a position where a patient is, say, three kilograms overloaded, and we give them two units of blood, remove three litres of fluid, plus the blood volume. And actually, they've got a blood transfusion, but they haven't gained any extra volume. This is particularly important for patients that don't pass urine anymore, and this should be one of the first questions that you ask to any hemodialysis patient that lands in front of you. Blood transfusions for hemodialysis patients should really only be performed on dialysis unless in extremis. Clearly, if a patient presents with a haemoglobin of four, and a blood pressure of 60, then you just get on with the blood transfusion and ask questions later. But if that is not the case, and the patient is not an extremist, then we should aim to do these blood transfusions on dialysis. The prime reason for this being, if you gave a, a dialysis patient two units of blood off dialysis, and then they become short of breath in the middle of the night, if they don't pass in the urine, then no amount of fruizomide is going to be helpful, and they're going to need dialysis. So point number one, aim to transfuse, hemodialysis patients on dialysis. A second problem that we run into fairly frequently is the delivery of a sliding scale or variable rate insulin infusion for patients on hemodialysis. In fact, it's a bit more of an issue with a fixed rate insulin infusion. And, And the issue here is that you have a patient that is hyperglycemic and needs insulin treatment, but also needs fluid because of their osmotic diuresis. The key difference for hemodialysis patients is that whilst they might have a large amount of osmotic agent in high high blood sugars, they may not have the diuresis because they don't have any kidney function. So giving them large volumes of intravenous fluid may actually precipitate fluid overload. I've seen a number of hemodialysis patients who have been treated for DKA and unfortunately have gone into pulmonary edema and then they're in a difficult situation where they are overloaded and acidotic and often hypokalemic, but thankfully we have a wonderful treatment called hemodialysis, which can sort all of those at one time. But we would prefer that patients are not placed in that situation. So on the renal wards, we often deliver a variable rate insulin infusion without fluids, a so-called dry sliding scale. This involves slightly reducing the normal dose of insulin by about half a unit at a time, but allows us to control blood sugars without uh, giving large volumes of fluid. Again, this is particularly important for aneurysm patients. So point number two would be to think about a dry sliding scale for hemodialysis patients. When hemodialysis patients come in unwell, septic, hypotensive, we are often asked questions about how much fluid they should be given. That's an impossible question to answer over the phone, and is often a difficult question to answer even in person. My personal technique is to... Give patients fluid bonuses in 250 or 500 mil bonuses to see how they respond. A key point of fluid resuscitation for any patient, not just hemodialysis patients, is to give an amount of fluid and then assess what their response is. If we have somebody who's hypotensive and we put them on fluids for eight hours and come back 10 hours later, really there's not been any attempt to see how effective this fluid is being. Do we need to speed it up? Are they developing signs of fluid overload? So when we have somebody who is hypotensive, hypovolemic, we should be assessing the response. So giving 250 mils, coming back in 15 minutes, half an hour, seeing what's happening and seeing how they respond. By the same token, I'm, I've mentioned anuric patients a lot. We should not just be throwing three or four liters into patients that don't pass any urine. Some of our hemodialysis patients will have a fluid restriction of 500 mils per day. Uh, now, clearly when they're hypotensive, that doesn't apply. But if you give them three or four litres, they may go into pulmonary edema. And if they're in pulmonary edema with a blood pressure of 80 systolic, for instance, then they're in a difficult position and will be unable to dialyze and may need to go to intensive care. So for fluid administration, there is no simple answer as to how much fluid dialysis patient should be given. But I think that the, the response to treatment should be assessed. Other organ problems, such as heart failure, will need to be taken into account but it's understanding that these patients need an intensive amount of care and that we need to go back and review them time after time. Other broader things that occur in hemodialysis patients are that their antibiotic doses need to be reduced for so-called renal dose treatments, and antihypertensives should be stopped when they are septic because they will only contribute to hypotension and also will make it more difficult to dialyze them when they're on them. Great, thank you.